You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome to the GGTMC. We have managed to get together, and it wasn't uh, too long of a delay uh, this time around. Not not a three- or four-weeker. This is only a two-weeker. Mm-hmm. So we're the two-weeker tweakers. Some have called me a two-bagger. Oh, so. yeah, well, hmm. interesting, interesting. <laughs> May uh, warrant further investigation. In <laughs> <laughs> a double-bagger. Good old double bagger. Ongi. Call him Bagger Vance. I always bring one for her, too. <laughs> All right. So we are back, and this week we are sponsored by Arrow. I, I don't know when's the last time I did an Arrow show. I don't remember. But uh, um, we're doing uh, Ronin from 1998 with the John Frankenheimer film, um, which is an interesting release from them. But really, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, he's 21 years old now, so it's... I don't know if it's an interesting release from them or it's just interesting that I'm getting sold so quick that it's 21 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. And um, we're also doing Horror Express, which is not released by Arrow yet, but they did send out a demo disc. And there is a Synapse. I think Synapse, I think, put it out? Uh, Severn. Severn, yeah. Yeah, it's either one of those two. I always get those two confused. Well, it's uh, the S. It's the S, it is. It's probably the fact that they're both genre labels too. That probably does doesn't help. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, they put a Blu-ray out, I think, not too long ago. But uh, Arrow's putting another Blu-ray out. Uh, this is directed by Eugenio Martin, and uh, we'll talk about that one as well. Um, I really was itching to watch that, so we decided, what the hell? Let's watch it. Let's do it. It's our show. What the fuck? Who cares? Yeah. Let's do it. We're, Stick it to the man. Yeah, we're double baggers. We will do what we got to do. <laughs> one for Telly and one for me. That's right. We're the Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee of podcasting this week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who would be the abominable snowman or whatever it is in that movie. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll discuss that in a little while. Uh, so, yeah, we're back. Um, a lot of you may know that listen to the show and interact with us. Uh, about Will's situation now. Again, I'm not going to talk about it on the show, but he did uh, 
kind of make a public announcement. And uh, you know, we wish him the best. He's got yes. some. He's got some stuff to work through there, and uh, we wish nothing but you know him and his family the best. So hopefully everything will work out to the positive there. And we love you, brother. And hopefully he'll be back as soon as possible, guys. All right, let's get into what we've been watching, man. I haven't watched a whole lot. What have you watched? Christ, almost nothing. Uh, let's yeah. see. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I watched the first two of the Torasan uh, movies from uh, Shochiku Studios, I believe. First one was Torasan, Our Lovable Tramp, and the second one was uh, Torasan's Cherished Mother. And they're basically about this uh, low level yakuza kind of guy but not really but he's just he's a, like a book peddler um and he um he just drifts around and he wanders back into his hometown and kind of uh meets back up with his family uh which consists of his uncle his aunt and his sister uh who is played by the really good looking uh chieko baisho uh just to get that one in there mm-hmm. um but uh the, the movies the first one was like okay um, the main character is kind of, uh, he's a bit overblown. He jumps to, he's got a very short fuse. It seems that like is, uh, a bit irritating in how quick he, uh, he'll jump to conclusions and then kind of loses, uh, loses his shit. Uh, but the second one, I actually liked a bit more. Um, you know, he's a little more relatable, uh, and he's a lot more, uh, leveled mm-hmm. uh so to speak and you really get to see in the second one how they've set up their uh their sort of uh, zatoichi-esque um uh formula for the series uh and yeah i i, I think i think there was like five thousand uh sequels to this um that went oh christ all the way up until i think into the 90s if not later um and so yeah, like thirty odd years of uh, Taurus on movies. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting. I'm, I'm I I do want to watch some more. Uh, I just uh, don't know that I'm you know jumping to uh, to get into them obviously because it's just a little bit goes a long way. Uh, but the uh, the main character is played by uh, Kiyoshi Atsumi, and he's uh, he's really good in the uh, in the part. So. Uh, willing to see where it goes, uh, slowly but surely with that one. Um, and then basically the only other thing that I watched was uh, resurrection of the golden wolf, uh, which is 1979 directed by Toru Murakawa, uh, starring, uh, Yusaku Matsuda. And man, this thing was really not all that impressive. I got to say, um, it is, uh, it's it's grimy, uh, and it gets a lot of things right. Um, it's about a guy who's uh, he's basically a salary man, uh, and he's uh, concocted this plan in order to steal from uh, his bosses, I believe. Or no, he, he steals a bunch of money, uh, and then he, he's trying to figure out a way to, to kind of launder it, more or less. Um, and I mean, the, the character, the main character is such a dirtbag. Uh, that it makes it very difficult to uh, to want to see him succeed in the way that we normally want to see guys like this succeed. Mm. You know, when we want to yeah. follow yeah. criminals, he's not nearly as compelling as uh, as he really should be because he's just he's so skanky. He gets a 
he gets some chick uh, hooked on some kind of pharmaceutical, uh, and then just you know she, she, you know, he does it in order to to get information uh, out of her. You know, he kind of uses her as a as a spy, uh, and then she of course you know flings herself at him and and all this sort of thing. And the, the movie is over two hours, which man, this thing could have easily used a good forty minute cut. Um, so I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's it it does have some good stuff going on, but not enough to really justify the uh, the laborious plotting uh, and just the uh, the compulsion to not see this guy succeed. And plus, it also goes on. It, even the ending um, goes on a bit too long. There's like a there's a perfect shot that they that they should have ended on, and then it continues on for like another two or three minutes. And you're like, really? Why? Why would you? But but regardless. Um, I do have a couple other of uh, Murakawa's movies and Matsuda's. I believe they worked on, oh God, what was it called? Uh, Deadly Game Trilogy or Dangerous Game Trilogy. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and I believe I have at least two of those. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. I've heard they're a bit better. Uh, but this one is, uh, you could watch it, but it's not something that's all that engaging, I don't think. Hmm. Um and other than that, uh, I started to catch up on uh, the marvelous Ms. Maisel or Mrs. Maisel, whatever, on Amazon. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'm told just won an Emmy uh, because it tells you on Amazon. But I was going to watch it anyway <laughs> because uh, because quite frankly, uh, I am a huge fan of uh, of Gilmore Girls and Amy Sherman Palladino. I think she writes really sharp dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know her characters are always really colorful and. Uh, and engaging, um, even though her plots tend to be a bit redundant and uh, a bit grating at times. Um, but otherwise, uh, so far I think I'm I think I'm four episodes in, maybe three episodes in. I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, it's really uh, I'm I'm digging it. So, uh, so you're watching the first season, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't cra- I haven't cracked that uh, I haven't cracked that open yet or not. So that's one of the shows that. I was thinking about watching, and then uh, it won an Emmy, and I was like, "Well, you know what? I think I'll probably give it a give it a whirl sometime." But I haven't. I, I can't remember what I'm working on right now, streaming wise. Oh, I'm uh, streaming wise. I used to sit around, you know, like like a lot of us, I used to sit around and binge watch things, but I don't really have the time to do that now. But I always have some show I'm streaming. Right? Mm-hmm. I have a show I'm streaming. I have my regular shows, mm-hmm. and then I got my movies. You know, I got, I got yep. my. Stuff. So whatever I'm streaming, so what I'm streaming currently is Young Justice season one, right? So I'm watching. Oh yeah, yeah. All those and trying to get to Young Justice season three because it got released as an original series on DC Universe, and uh, I was like, well, shit, I never watched all of the episodes of Young Justice. I'd only catch them rarely. I'd catch them every now and then with my son. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back and trying to watch those. Pretty good show, man. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, what I like yeah, about yeah, animated no, shows is they really do feel like the comic book format. You know what I mean? Yep. Like if you watch those, especially those DC animated twenty minute shows, uh, Justice League Unlimited, all that stuff. I mean, that stuff is. Uh, I really like the Justice League Unlimited stuff and the Justice League uh, cartoons a lot, and of course the Batman yeah. the animated series, all that kind of stuff. So, yep. Well, I I love Batman Brave and the Bold. And yeah, that one too. That one's great. That as well. was outstanding. Yep, that one's great as but well. But yeah, Outsiders so far is pretty good. Uh, yeah, the Young Justice shows a, a, a decent one. Yeah, I'm digging it. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because there's a lot of characters in well, not a lot of characters, I should say. I'm not an Aqualad guy. No. Um, 
as, as dull as some people might think Aquaman is. Aqualad's like to me like a whole level duller. <laughs> um, and I, you know, there's a big part of me that obviously wants the greatest hits package. Like I want more, you know, Martian Manhunter. I don't want more uh, Megan Manhunter, and I don't want more of this and that. But you know, there's enough of those guys in there to, to have fun. Yeah. You know, the character from DC that I always I always smirk at and always just think is, I don't mind the character, but I always laugh internally. And, and that's the Zatanna character. <laughs> and, and Z- Zatanna and Zartara? Is that the- uh, Zatara was her dad. Zatanna yeah. is the is yeah. the, the daughter. Yeah. And here's the reason I laugh. I don't laugh because of the powers or everything else. I laugh because they have to put the suit on. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, let me ask you this: What's better, the the top coat and tails with the fishnets, or that that blue thing with like the the weird cornucopia thing on her head from uh, back in the what was it, late seventies, early eighties, or I whatever? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough question. That was hyenas. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suffer from a disease called hyenas. I don't know. If you know. <laughs> I think there's an unguent for that somewhere. <laughs> High on the crack, the the hyenas. <laughs> My taint's about a foot long. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're so childish. See what I'm talking about, man? Distractions. It's all about distractions. <laughs> yep, yep. Life can kick you in the balls, but as long as you get online, you can talk about hyenases. <laughs> <laughs> and everything seems okay for 20 minutes. Yep. Oh, Lord. Anyway, um, no, but that's what I've been streaming, and I don't know what I'm going to move on to. Oh, I know what I'm going to move on to next. It's going to be... Well, I don't know if it'll be a streaming thing, but uh, Doom Patrol comes out, uh, I think, yeah, Friday, Friday yeah. or Saturday, so this week. Oh, is it that? Uh, yeah, the DC Universe uh, live action. Okay, yep. and there's uh, Umbrella Academy starts oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the yeah. 15th. I'm going to watch that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you, uh, are, you, are you checking out Deadly Class by any chance? I am not checking it out yet, no. no. It's pretty damn good. Yeah, so far, the Benedict show- Wong is, is great. Excuse me, but my throat just went incredibly dry. Yeah, <laughs> the show I'm watching, uh, the show I watch typically week to week right now. There's only two I'm watching, or no, there's three. Uh, two of them you're going to understand. One of them you're going to be like, "What the fuck?" But it's just the way I am. Um, I'm watching uh, the Orville. I watch the Orville because I think it's quite entertaining, actually. Now, is that more comedy or more like? Dude, it's really weird. I thought it would be more comedy, but it's really more Star Trek. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I, I kind of have a low tolerance for Seth MacFarlane these yeah. days. This is nothing like the Seth MacFarlane stuff, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. This is the most different thing he does, and it's the best thing he does, if you ask me. Okay. All right. I uh, might check that out then. Yeah. I think you'd like it. I think you'd like it. I was surprised as well. Like I, I did not watch the first season, and then everybody told me, "Check it out. It's not what you think it is." Because mm-hmm. you know people know I'm a Star Trek fan and and uh, you know I'm just a fan of that genre. I, you know I think Seth MacFarlane himself says says said I said in an interview with Mark Marin I think I listened to that uh, there's something about the bridge interactions how that stuff works on TV and stuff it just lends itself to good storytelling. Hmm. And uh, anyway, it's 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 a better show than you would think, and it actually has some good like it it hits you with some good social aspects without hitting you over the head with it like the original Star Trek did. So it's very interesting. Okay. It's very interesting. Um, but there is some comedy bits in it and some some groan-inducing moments. But, it, I mean, there's some really good stuff, too, though. I mean, you know. Anyway, just check it out cool. when you get a chance. I think you'll like it. And then uh, I watch uh, Project Blue Book, which is like, a, I think it's like a History Channel show or something. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, which is, is pretty good. And, well, it has been. I've only watched two episodes. I got three on the DVR right now. And then 
I've been watching the rookie with Nathan Fillion. So I like Nathan Fillion. I find him charismatic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And entertaining. Uh, I don't really watch much cop shows anymore, but I found the rookie kind of a fun premise. You know, 40 year old guy wants to mm-hmm. change his life, moves to LA, becomes a cop. It's total TV world, make believe. But uh, the show's not bad. I actually enjoy it. So, yeah, there you go. That's what cool. I'm watching nowadays. But I did watch one movie this week. Ooh. So in all my in all my spare time, I could have watched anything. Okay, I could have watched the new Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, which I've been itching to watch, but I haven't pulled the trigger on. I could have watched any number of things, but I chose to watch the Meh, not the uh. not the Meg. <laughs> oh yeah, the Meh. It's uh, very. It, it is, is very meh. It is very meh. Um, you know, I really, there's a part of me that really wants to like the Meg because I, I love the whole, so I love the whole underwater research facility Well, that's kind of, that's kind of the real thing. bitch of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I love the whole idea of the underwater research facility. I think mm-hmm. probably out of all of Cameron's films, one of my favorites of his is The Abyss. Probably pure and simple. That's probably, honestly, it, it probably is my favorite Cameron movie. Okay. Uh so I've always loved the underwater facility research team. I mean, there's a bit of a alien, obviously, there tied to that. And and the design of the underwater facility in the Meg is great. I thought, oh, man, this is going to be fun. Even though, oddly, in modern times, of course, if you was to go down into a research facility in modern movies, you have to go down to the research facility and every species of animal has to be present when they look outside <laughs> of the... <laughs> because this is modern movies. We can't live with the fact that if you were actually probably underwater, you'd probably see maybe just the occasional fish. Yeah, you'd see some dirt and seaweed, maybe. Yeah. Not in this movie. In this movie, it's the full-on uh, aquarium experience if you take your yeah. kids to it, you know. So anyway, I knew right then and there I was probably in trouble. And uh, I was a fan of the book, the first Meg book, and I've read a couple of Meg books, and I, I find them bubblegummy. I mean, they're not they're not deep reading by any sense of the word. Sure. But they're kind of fun in that, you know, kind of revisiting of jaws kind of way and blah 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 definition of beach reads yeah 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 but um this movie is pretty dull yeah it really really is most of the way through and oddly for the money they spent there are some moments where i liked it but oddly i found the effects to be rather and i don't know if i maybe i'm the only one but i found them to be not nearly as impressive as i think they thought they were <laughs> you know, uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, the, the shark looked very rubbery. Yep, and I, you know, I get it. You know, I mean, the gills are supposed to move and everything, but the whole time I'm, I'm, I'm so distracted by the fact that the shark looked like it's, you know, it looked like uh, masses of fat just kind of jumping around. I guess it would, yep. but uh, I don't know. It just bothered me, and and they know. just kept showing it and showing yeah, yeah, it and yeah. showing it, and it's like, oh, we get it. Like, so if you don't know, and I'm not going to say it here because even if. Even if it is kind of a just a very average movie, I'm not going to ruin it for people who haven't seen it. But you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a hook in it. There's a twist in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've read the book and you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. You know, one thing leads to another. Uh, I thought that sequence was well done, uh, special effects wise and everything. And if you hadn't seen that or didn't know anything about that story, I'm sure that's quite a shocker. And I think they handled that pretty good. But as a movie fan. Even if I didn't know that, I saw it coming a million miles away. <laughs> yes, you do. Because they just throw, they just lay it out there for you. So one of the things I think we've we talked about this. I think when Will went and saw this at the drive-in with his kids, 
the movies, you know, it's uh, financed by China and the U.S., so it's a, it's one of those world finance pictures to be released worldwide. So it to me, it's very bland in the way it tells its story. It's like it's it's very A to B to C, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, it's it's like it's we're going to take the safest path of telling the story, and even then, it felt too long and uh, kind of tried. And he, Jason Statham, I mean, he's he's fine in the movie, but. Uh, you know, I, I wish he would. Honestly, I do wish sometimes he would. He, he does a pretty good job in a couple of moments in this movie of lightening up. But he's almost become a caricature of himself in some ways. Yeah. I love him. Uh, I don't always love his movies. Let me be forthright no. and say that. I think he's got a great look, and I think he's an interesting actor. I, I love he's, magnetic. Him. he's magnetic, certainly. Yeah. But I find him to be like overly boorish sometimes, like so serious sometimes that I just want to kind of smack him and say, dude, lighten up, <laughs> you know, but in this, he has a couple of good moments. Uh, one where he says, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> my Jason Statham impersonation. Anymore. That was nice. Yeah. Every, every, and I have to believe all, all of his dialogue has to be 80 yard, right? Because he never, yeah. he never gets loud. No, yeah, like, nope. you know, the side of a submarine's caving in like, we got to move. <laughs> It's like what the we gotta get out of here. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. I like that. We gotta get out of here. <laughs> it just, he just sounds like a guy. I know that he's tied to this world, but he sounds like the prototypical guy Ritchie heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like every guy Ritchie movie has a heavy in it that sounds like Jason Statham. It seems. All right, sunshine. What you got? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very Cockney. Yeah. But I mean, I love it. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm an Anglophile anyway, so I, I mean, I love that shit. But and he's fine in the movie, and the act, and the acting is fine too for what it is. But I never really felt. I, I know we're talking too much about the Meg. That's because we don't have a lot to talk about in the intro this week. But I never really felt that. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? That cast either. It never really felt like a. Uh, there's some good actors in there and some fun stuff, but it never really felt like a unit. Uh, a family type atmosphere. I, I think for the Twelve Little Indians format or the Alien format or whatever you want to call it, for that to work, I think everybody's got to have kind of a unique role. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like all the characters kind of just served their own purpose all throughout. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So anyway, just pretty dull. I mean, I can see where people enjoyed it and stuff. My son, he was so convinced. So this was going to be one of his first what he could deem a scary movie. Okay. And he was so convinced he was going to watch this. Now, my son's a very sensitive boy. He doesn't really like anything that jumps at him and stuff. And I was the same way, actually, when I was his age. I was very sensitive to horror films and stuff like that. <clears throat> so I feel like he's probably going to be one of these kids who doesn't watch the genre and then absolutely crushes it or falls in love with the genre when he gets to the point where he handles it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because right now he totally you know, kind of averts himself. He just kind of goes away from it. But he was convinced this was going to be his first big horror film. He, he thought it was a horror movie. And I was like, well, it kind of is, kind of isn't. But it's a thriller. Let's say that. So, And uh, I told him I watched it. to Because ch- usually if he wants to watch something like that, I'll watch it first to see if he wants to watch it. And Because uh, that's what dads do. We sacrifice four hours of our life watching The Meg <laughs> instead of watching two. And uh, I watched it. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I don't think you can handle it. I think there's some shocking moments and stuff. But I said, I think... So I know my son, like speed of, of a creature is going to intimidate him. 
And I think they did a pretty good job handling the speed, but maybe it's almost too fast. <laughs> the shark in that movie. So it's almost too fast. Sometimes I'm like, God damn, this thing's moving, boy. And, you know, my, my, I'm, I'm sitting there playing the old man role in my head. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, look, if a shark's that damn big and it swims away <laughs> from you that damn quick, the basic physics tell me that the tail fin of that fucking thing will break your spine probably the minute it swims away from you like a goldfish. Uh-huh. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> and, you know, I've watched enough National Geographic shows to know that, you know, those guys that swim with the whale sharks are like, yeah, you have to be very careful because if you if you swim too close to the whale shark, you know, and he swims that and he whacks that tail around, you'll break your spine. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> that was. Part Jason Statham, part Jacques Cousteau, part a little bit. <laughs> I was picking up on the French. Uh, the French yeah, 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 yeah. There was some French in there. Yeah, you could get good. Mm-hmm. You could pick it up. Good. You knew where I was going. We oui. <laughs> Jason Stu- Cousteau. <laughs> I would watch that show. Yeah, National Geographic Extreme. <laughs> but only if they went to Lake Titicaca. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love Titicacas. Yeah. yeah. Me and my long taint. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, have problem, uh, have problems with titty cock eye with that hyenas. Uh, <laughs> well played, <laughs> but no, that's uh, that was the Meg. Yeah, it's just you know, it's just right down the middle. I, literally, I'd I'd call it like the you know the five out of five, maybe a five and a half out of five out of ten. I mean, no, it's a five out of five. Goddamn, it's a goddamn masterpiece. But yeah. the, you know, the five out of ten, the five and a half. I mean, it's the prototype to me. It's just like. Throw a bunch of money at it, play to the Jaws fans' uh, nostalgia, and uh, don't don't deliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really, it yeah, it just kind of lays there. Yep, yeah, literally, like the shark in <laughs> certain. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, some good stuff though. I, I gotta say, yeah, as much as I don't really like the CG, that moment where the and it's not a giveaway, right? Because it was in the trailer. That moment where the uh, shark swims up to the. Uh, the observation deck mm-hmm. and the little girls looking. Uh, that is wonderfully done. Um, I'll say that. I'll say that. That is a wonderful image. That small girl uh, yeah. that, and that gigantic shark. That is a wonderful looking image. I, I will say that. But, um, yeah. It looks like the cover of like a comic or the cover of like a, a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel from the 80s or something. Absolutely. So normally we'd take a break, but since we only had a twenty-minute intro, we might as well just jump into the first movie, man. Why? why All right. Why, you know why? Why? Why stop and start? Unless you got something you got to do. I'm drinking coffee. We're, we got a good conversation going. Hmm. Coffee's getting a little lukewarm. Um, what do we want to talk about first? Horror Express or wrong? <clears throat> we can do Horror Express. And actually, uh, if you want to give the intro, I will be back in like twenty seconds. Oh, okay. So there you go. So, all right. Uh, we'll do that. Let me find it while you go do that. Go ahead. Uh, all right. Mm-hmm. So he's going to walk away for a second. And I am going to give the intro for Horror Express. So let me uh, look it up because, of course, I'm not prepared because I just decided in my random uh, professionalism to say, hey, let's not take a break. And then, of course, Todd did one. Oh, yeah, anyway. All right, so Horror Express. It's 19, uh, 1906 in China. A British anthropologist discovers a frozen prehistoric creature and must transport it to Europe by train. 
which I guess makes sense. Um, again, this is uh, from 1972, directed by Eugenio Martin, also known as Gene Martin. Uh, I think this film was also known as the uh, the Trans-Siberian Express or something like that, maybe at one point. Uh, I think it was uh, Horror on the Trans-Siberian Express. Yeah, which is also a pretty great title. Oh, yeah. Um, and we'll get into this as we talk about it. Uh, there's something about trains and movies. Uh, I don't. I, I think it's. I think it comes down to that aspect we were just talking about with the Meg. I think it's the uh, the closed off environment, right? Uh, it's partly, yeah. It's partly the microcosm thing, and it's partly, at least in my mind, uh, it's that sense of propulsion. Uh, it's always moving forward, so there's always that constant. Yep. You know, the, the scenery is always passing by, so the, the you know the plot has to move past and. Yeah. That's my thinking. I think when I was a kid, I think one of the first books I ever read when I kind of started stepping outside my comfort zone was uh, Murder on the Orient Express. And um, and I think one of the first films I ever found fell in love with, um, and this is going to sound fucked up, but I mean, this comes from my generation, but I enjoyed the was Silver Streak. Okay. Yeah, the uh, Gene, uh, Gene Wilder. Um, yep, Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor. Uh, yeah, and Jill Clayburgh's in it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, which is kind of like a, uh, a whodunit on a train, right? And yep. uh, it's not, it's not. You know, if you go back and watch it, it's not overly well done. But I think it was something that I enjoyed. And I, I, again, I think uh, I'm always been hooked on that. So every time I get a chance to see a movie on a train, like I haven't watched the remake of the Orient Express that uh, Kenneth Branagh did, but it's okay. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. I mean, I just haven't got to it. But so I. Let me be forthright and say this before we start talking about it. I love the idea of traveling by train. There's something, uh, I don't know, I know it sounds stupid, but there's something kind of, uh, I don't know if the eccentric's the right word or um, eloquent or something. Maybe eloquent might be the better word about the mm-hmm. idea of traveling by train. I just, I don't know. And and the reason why I say that is because I never travel by train. So for those of you who travel by train, you probably have some horror stories to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously I've ridden public transit systems, but I'm talking about traveling by train. I'm talking about going cross country or going, you know, at least across a state on train. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I've never done that. So, well, it has, a, it has a certain, um, old school kind of exoticness to it. Right? Yeah, there's a romanticism, right? There's, yeah. That's yeah the, I think that's yeah. the word we're looking for is there's a romantic notion of the train. And, uh, you know, the, I my, my idea of the ultimate kind of romantic, not not just for me and my wife, but kind of romantic for myself, vacation is to kind of train across uh, Europe, kind of hop on trains and just kind of go around, you know, and kind of experience Europe that way. So it's, you know, because I'm too lazy to backpack. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking Sammy at- can't stay clear of the moors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be on the moors. <laughs> naked I'd be laying there naked and they'd be like what's wrong I was like I was attacked by a werewolf like no you weren't I was like okay well I'm just naked <laughs> look at my taint yeah check out my foot long taint on the moors <laughs> <laughs> you want to see more <laughs> <laughs> but you go what you, fuck you go look at my foot long taint on the moors yeah on the moors <laughs> yeah there we go <laughs> That's what we need. We need Jason Statham, an action movie, fighting werewolves on the moors. <laughs> I'd watch it. I would, too, especially if you wore a Sherlock hat the whole time. Yes. All that right. fucking deer stalker, baby. Oh, yeah. All right, so I don't know who's going to lead on this. Uh, we can talk about it. You can do it. We can whatever. Uh, I'll let, uh, I always let you, whoever, choose which one they want to lead on. So if you want to lead on this one, that's fine. I'll lead on the other. 
Yeah, I'll lead on this one. Yeah, all right. Um, let's, let's crack this nut open. All righty. Uh, have you done the synopsis? I have done the synopsis because when I say crack the nut on this one, I know it sounds like I'm being naughty and silly, but this movie is a bit nutty. <laughs> it's a little bit nutty. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a little nutty, but in an oh-so, almost like a payday bar, in an oh-so satisfying yeah. way. I'll say that. Yep, yep, absolutely. Uh, this is actually one that... Uh, I had reviewed a while back on the blog, actually, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and I I don't normally go back and reread those when we're going to do something like that on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't hear. So I, I'd be very curious to know how much I overlap uh, between then and uh, and what I'm going to go over now. But um, yeah, so I mean, the film is is one of the, this is one of those ones that um, was a very early deal for me, late night uh, TV deal. Um, and it was just surprising to me. Uh, it was one of those ones that, you know, uh, when you see the, the beginning of this movie, because it's just, it's just the train light, you know, the headlight, uh, just, you know, kind of moving forward. And you got this fantastic score by, uh, John Kakavas. There's a great name. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, the train light combined with the score, it, it's one of the things that captivated me. Uh, when I saw this way back when, uh, and of course it was in one of those really, you know, grimy, um, you know, beat the fuck up prints. Uh, but when I saw this thing, I was just, I, I was floored, floored by it. Um, because it was so, you know, for, <laughs> for as much as this thing rips off, uh, and, and kind of, uh, you know, for as many things as it throws out there, it does them almost all exceptionally well um yeah it's a very it's a very and i think well okay uh it's it's uh, okay i gotta back up so to begin with you got uh, christopher lee's uh fur hat game and it's completely on point while well, he's traveling in uh manchuria i believe uh 1902 yeah, yeah, nineteen two, nineteen six. Uh, yeah, something like the that. Plot synopsis says nineteen oh six. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, he he basically is is exploring these caves, you know, because he's a scientist, uh, and he finds this uh, this man ape yeti thing uh, that he takes with him onto the train, and he is quickly introduced to his well, we are quickly introduced to his colleague. Played by Peter Cushing, uh, and you know it's obviously. I mean, listen, you put these two guys in a movie, and it's automatically, if not gold, definitely silver with hints. Yeah. So are, um, are, are they colleagues though, or don't or doesn't? Well, they're 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 they're. I mean, I think they're peers, but I think that uh, the well, I don't peers th- might be peers might be a better. Yeah, peers would be a better. Yeah, because I don't think they're work, they're working together. I think they get. To oh know no, no, no 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 yeah, no. Yeah. And, and I think they're both in different fields anyway. Yeah, I think yeah. one's in biology, one's in, in archaeology or whatever. Correct. correct. So. Um, but you know, Cushing shows up at the train station, and you know, I have to ask if if he's just a little bit shady, or is he just more in tune with the ways of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because he, you know, he knows to uh, kind of grease the palms of the uh, the train station attendant in order to get himself a, 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 a what the fuck do they call them? Uh, ah, car, uh, car, uh, damn it, a room. Uh, I'll use that word. Um, <laughs> And of course, you get the rivalry with Lee uh, because Lee, of course, bristles uh, as soon as he sees that there's bribery going on. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just it's just instantly the, the 
chemistry that these two guys have on screen is just amazing. Uh, and the way that, you know, every movie that they've been in together uh, is always amazing. Yeah. Uh, and plus they were, of course, uh, you know, great friends um, off screen as well. And if I'm not mistaken, and I may very well be, if I am, please somebody correct me, but I believe uh, Cushing's wife had just died prior to this. Mm-hmm. And Lee had to talk him into doing the movie just to kind of, you know, give his friend something to do. Um, so that's the, it's a nice little, uh, yeah. a nice little shade on the, on the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that was correct. Actually, that is correct. That's one of the, the famous kind of background stories of this film is that Cushing wasn't going to do it. He was, you know, obviously very upset. Right. Um, right. Devastated might be the better word and, uh, really had a hard time getting over his wife death, but really for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but really, obviously this was a fresh wound at this point. And, uh, uh, what I've always heard is Christopher Lee kind of, uh, in, in, not in the acting realm, but kind of held his hand throughout the production to kind of help get him through it. And, uh, even so far as to, I think, stay in the same uh, room or everything with him just to make sure he was okay. So true friendship there. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, so uh, basically what happens is they're at the train station and this guy tries to pick the lock on the, uh, on the, uh, crate that the fossil is in. And by the way, I love that they, uh, they actually have to give you the definition of what a fossil is, uh, in this thing. Um, and the guy winds up dead, uh, and his eyes are, you know, just white blank, uh, boiled eyes. Um, and that, that effect is freaky to this day. It was one of the things that, uh, has stuck with me ever since the first time that I saw it yep. to, you know, up until the last time I saw it, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it works. It still works. It, it, it absolutely works. And the great thing about it is not so, not even, not even solely, uh, the actual eye effect. Uh, it's the way that Martin, uh, shoots the, uh, the attack scenes in this. Cause he kind of like, he kind of like goes, zooms in and zooms out and he kind of, you know, blurs and it comes, you know, and he uses that to like, you know, get over the transitions from, you know, people being normal to having blood coming out of every orifice on their face. Yeah. Uh, and then their eyes are, you know, are just dead. Um, let's go back to, the, it, let's go back to the lock picking thing though, for a second though. Am, am I wrong? It's been a couple of weeks since I watched it and I don't know how my memory plays and stuff, but did the Yeti-esque creature end up picking the lock or did he end up tearing it off? Because I, I feel like he reached around for a nail or something. No, no. he Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> takes a nail, he bends it on a crate, yeah, uh, and then right. he picks the lock uh, when he's on the train. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, That's the kind of movie this is. Yes. Yes. Our hairy Yeti primordial man <laughs> can, can pick the lock that he would have known nothing about. <laughs> Because uh-huh. there was no locks when he was alive. <laughs> well, maybe there were locks. I'm not going to give it away, but maybe there were locks someplace else that he may have been. That's correct. That's correct. So now it's kind of coming to to my brain a little bit. I remember that there's a bit of a there's a bit of a thing element to this uh, yeti creature. Yes. And yeah. That, that yeah. It, yeah. That it absorbs knowledge. Yes. So, yep. which is a nice touch. Yeah. No, it's great. Um, you get uh, you're also introduced at the train station to uh, Alberto de Mendoza uh who is just this really sickly greasy looking guy he's like a Rasputin character yeah. um yeah, he is and he yeah and he does this thing where he's like you know anywhere that there's the the 
anywhere that God is, there's the room for the cross, and he takes a piece of chalk and he draws it on the the flagstone or whatever, <laughs> and then he tries to draw it on the on the tarp on the uh, on the crate, and of course the chalk won't work. Um, so it, you know, it gives you that that instantly. It gives you that little thing where like you don't know exactly is you know is this like a a, a, a Satan movie or you know an occult <laughs> movie or is this yeah. a, a monster movie? It's a very interesting premise. You know the setup. Uh, that they have between science versus religion, uh, and it resolves itself in a very Nigel Neal sort of way. Uh, this is very, I think, indebted to the uh, you know stuff like the Quatermass movies, um, even though it, you know it then takes it a step beyond uh, the sort of subtlety that uh, that Neal may have given to it. Um, you know, it's ex- it's extremely ambitious. Yeah, um, it I- does play. I'm sorry. I, oh, la- I laugh. God, at please, the, no, please, please. I laugh at the uh, Demon Doza character because I mean, talk about a guy that's like stressed from the minute you see him. <laughs> yeah, he really is. I mean, he's he re- just he's not having a good year. <laughs> I know. He, he really needs a hit of on, on a bong or something. <laughs> he needs something. Yeah, and and his uh, his masters, the uh, Petrovskys, they love to tease and humiliate him. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, almost, you could, he's almost like a hunchback character. He's so yeah, he's so yeah, stressed, yeah. man. He's like he's always kind of like looking up at people like Igor yep. or something it's very strange performance but it's great yeah. it's great he looks great well and even even you know you, you even could look at it as being like a Renfield performance yeah, yeah in yeah. a way it yeah. is very much that but you you could see the resentment uh in the in you know everything that he does and ultimately <laughs> yeah. the film the film kind of plays out on a class level in that in that way you know it's like the lower or working class people are attacking the snotty elitists in a lot of uh, in a lot of different ways in this movie yep. and that's the thing that and that's the thing that I really like about it I mean I, I said it's extremely ambitious and I, I, I do think it is and it plays with multiple themes on multiple levels uh, you know it's it's cosmic horror and not something that I know I would ever ex- have expected from Spain and certainly not in 1972 no um, no no uh, even though I mean, this was you know, it kind of like was taking all of these these cultural things, like you know, chariots of the gods and all this kind of shit, uh, and just kind of um, you know, playing with them in the most yeah. It, it feels it feels how to how to put this? It feels both slapped together and very thought out because there are gigantic plot holes in the thing, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it works because it just keeps moving mm-hmm. and it just keeps jumping from, from idea to idea. Yeah. Um, and like and a lot, it, a lot of great cinema during this time, uh, maybe not seen as great cinema then, but as you go, as you move on, it's 1972, this is 2019. Another thing I realized going back and watching it this time, after all my experiences of watch, of watching films for the show, uh, and re kind of you know analyzing movies after all you know for these last ten years or whatever, uh, a lot of um, even though it's a Spanish film, a lot of those European sensibilities. There's spaghetti western in here. There's mm-hmm. the the English Hammer films are in here, obviously because of the casting, but it's still got that feel a little bit. Uh, the the music is very spaghetti westerness, western esque. Yeah. Uh, well, this is this is one of those movies where at least one character whistles the theme song. Yeah, which right? is always great. It's one of those right? kind of things. Yeah, uh, and that's that guy is played by Victor Israel, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the the ubiquitous Victor Israel. There can never be enough people that there. Well, there can always they, yeah, there can never be enough movies. I should say where a character whistles the theme throughout. I love that shit. Mm-hmm. I love when it's a great, the, it's the, a great theme too. Yeah. It's, I would put it up there close to being like uh, the green slime. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. just my personal opinion. Yes. 
But I do find uh, it interesting uh, because when we reviewed a long time ago, when we reviewed Cry of a Prostitute, one of the things I found so interesting about Cry of a Prostitute, because I had never seen it up until the point we did it for the show, but one of the things I found so interesting at that point was how much the Spaghetti Western had kind of penetrated the the thriller. Carcass. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Boucher's Buhol. You know, the, uh... <laughs> Speaking of taint. <laughs> yes. No, the... The the way it the, but I, I never really thought about the spaghetti western as an influence on other genres. I'd always thought of the spaghetti western as influenced by the American western and being mm-hmm. its own thing. But then if you look at a lot of these films from in the early seventies, the Gialli and all this stuff, uh, Spain and Italy and and they were putting out it. it there's a lot of the spaghetti western that kind of bleeds over into that, and it's very interesting to me. But I guess it makes sense, right? Because the American Western obviously bled into other film genres as well. So, yeah, well, you could you could clearly see how you know they would take their genres and each one would kind of be like a stepping stone into the next one. So it brings yeah. along a bunch of baggage well, with it. Yeah, that, and then the fact that obviously you know this is at least they they say this is based on Who Goes There, which is the original novel that the Thing from Another World was based on. Right. Which obviously John Carpenter's the Thing is based on. So you got three versions of this story, and all three versions of this story that I've seen and know, and I love all three, mm-hmm. uh, have Western elements to them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is, is interesting when you think about it. I mean, I, I don't know if, the, I think the story was originally set up as a sci-fi novel, right? But I've never actually uh, read yeah. the original novel, but or novella or whatever it is. I've never actually read it, but I mean, it seems like every interpretation seems to be uh, more of a Western than it tends to be a science fiction or a horror film. Well, I'm not going to say more of that, because certainly the John Carpenter's thing is definitely a horror film. And really, I guess the thing from another world, I guess it's very much a horror. Well, actually, I guess all of them are very much horror films, but there's just so much Western thrown in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Well, yeah, but yeah, except that, you know, the Indians are monsters. Yes. Um, yes. yes. That's the way I look at it. Uh, You know, but this thing is is both gruesome and adventurous. It's light and a little bit heady. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you you get these scenes where they're cutting open people's heads yeah. and looking at their brains and then and then they'll have they'll always come back to this where somebody has to walk into the compartment where all the dead bodies are and like pull back the sheets so we can get another shot <laughs> of you know these yeah. these skulls being opened and these uh yeah. these uh blank brains and these white eyes uh just to you know keep you on your toes a little bit um the idea of i, I tell you where i think it's nutty the idea of the last thing you see being imprinted well, on the yeah, eyeball. Well, that's, yeah. And if you have a thing for eye trauma, let me warn you. We, we talked a little bit about the boiling eyes. But yep. if you have a thing for eye trauma, this is not your movie. <laughs> <laughs> no. This no, movie, no, no. This movie's heavy on the eye trauma. Needles, uh, yep. knives, boilings. Yep. Ugh, they're all kinds of stuff. And I'm pretty sure they're like poking sheep eyes or something at some point. <laughs> Uh, they do poke a certain eye at some point with a, with a certain needle. Um, they get images of spaceships and yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love that shit though. I know. I love it Um, too. It's, it's, it's cheesy in the way that a Star Trek plot device would be. Yes. It's like, it's it's, brilliant. It's that, it's that perfect sort of Euro horror logic, right? Yeah. It's like, it almost makes sense, but there's no, there's no way it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. So there's there's just a part of you that just smiles at the idea of it. Well, it's like how how Christopher Lee's character immediately buys into a reanimated ape man on the loose. Yeah. Like you know, as a scientist, that should be the go to explanation for things, right? I.e., you know, the most 
preposterous thing you could possibly think of. Yeah. Uh, but but the great thing about it, uh, and, you know, as far as the movie goes, is that it spares us some time in the usual incredulity department that these things kind of, you know, always seem to have to start off with, right? Yep, yep. So, you know, it, it just it just goes right over that, gets right into it. And, then, you know, obviously it had to be the ape man. Right. Okay. Well, I could buy that. I'm a scientist too. Um, uh, and then, ooh, uh, one thing that you absolutely cannot pass up in this is that we get the uh, the divine Helga Line and Sylvia Tortosa. Um, oh, yeah, Tortosa. Two women who are, who are just stunning. Yeah. Um, even though one of them sticks around a little longer than the other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Euro uh, beauties in this thing for those of you who are, even though, it, you know, and that's another thing about the movie is that it is, it is astonishingly chaste. Uh, there's pretty much, there's no nudity. No. There's no even really hint of sex. Um, uh, no, no, no. No, there's none. There's, there's none. none. No. Um, I, I feel like it, at certain points, the Cushing character was... Maybe on his way there, but I think his uh, lounging robe may have uh, dashed his hopes. <laughs> well, it's, it's great that, you know, it, 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 and speaking of that, uh, you know, it's got some pretty sly humor in that regard, right? Yeah, it does. Like Cushing goes up to his his assistant and says, you know, I need your help. And she says, I'm not surprised at your age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nice little things like that. That was and funny, of course, actually. I, yeah. I, I thought that line was funny. I was like, what does she mean by that exactly? <laughs> yeah, right. Um but I mean, and of course, it has that classic—the classic line that everybody quotes uh, every time the movie comes up, you know. Which is, of course, "Monsters were British," you know. Um, so there's that. Uh, what else do we got here? Uh, went over that. Went over that. Went over that. Uh, it does have a decent use of miniatures in this thing, uh, actually, with the the train speeding along um, through the uh, the Siberian wasteland. Um, and, you know, it's not something that you see a lot of uh, in this movie. It, it usually sort of stands out. But I think that uh, Martin really does a nice job of uh, photographing it and editing it in there so that it never quite looks, you know, it never quite looks too uh, too cheesy. Um, so you, you completely buy into everything that's uh, that's going on. It sets the, the scene very well and it maintains it. Yeah. Um, let's see here. do. There is oh here's an interesting little thing about Lee's character is that you know he he's really and this is going back to that whole the class warfare kind of um, idea that's in the film uh, is that you know Lee says that he doesn't care that he's partly responsible for the deaths of multiple people uh, which he pretty much considers beneath him and he he says it flat out right I mean this guy is ostensibly the hero perhaps more than Cushing in the film because they kind they're kind of really do share the hero role although lee is you know a bit more swashbuckling and a bit more uh active in that regard yes um but i thought it was really interesting that they when you know would would stick their necks out to to say that you know this guy he's kind of a douche yeah um uh, but at the same time you know he's the guy who who we're following and he's the guy who's going to well who may uh save the day in the end of it what's interesting is lee's just a little bit older than you and i are now in this movie yikes. oh really yeah yikes right <laughs> ah, i suddenly feel young again <laughs> yeah. um yeah people age differently right but christopher lee for me growing up okay the only time i ever thought christopher lee was as a as a charming leading man mm -hmm. was maybe his early dracula performances 
Uh, I could see that. Other than that, I've always known him as an old man. But this movie is well. He's always been. He's always he. he yeah, he's always been kind of graying. Yeah, right. This, he was born in twenty two. This movie was released in seventy two. So he's roughly forty eight, forty nine, maybe fifty years old when he shoots this movie. Yep. Uh, you know, you and I were not too far away from that age. So, I mean, uh, I, I can tell you right now, I didn't. I don't look like Christopher Lee does here. <laughs> so you unless, look better, honey. Unless things change a lot in the next five years, <laughs> me, me, and you are in for a rude awakening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I need, I need to look and see how old Peter Cushing was because I think he was always the older one. I believe. Yeah, he was. Uh, was he? Yeah, he was older by nine years. So, was he really? Yeah, so he's almost at this point. He's almost uh, 60 at this point. Huh. Well, he, thank, you so, the, so he looks, thank you for the object lesson in mortality. Yeah, so he looks more his age in the film, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, and getting back to, you know, we were talking about the whole uh, memories being imprinted on the uh, the eyes thing and the Euro horror science thing. There's also uh, the idea that learning and memory are what cause the wrinkles on your brain. <laughs> Um, you know, it's one of those, you know, for the, but the thing, the, the thing about it is that for this plot and for the, for the movie that Martin's making, uh, you know, as it should, uh, these things work. Yeah, yeah. Um, even, you know, when they're patently dumb, when you're just sitting there like, come on, even I'm not that stupid. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think that, uh, it's one of the, the charms of this sort of, uh, sort of film is that it, it's a throwback, not only, um, in its setting, but in its uh, its logic or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, the police inspector uh, at one point in the movie peeks under his sheets to discover something horrible, and we've all been there. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, we've all been there. I was there. This, uh, I was there this morning. uh but yeah i mean it's stuff like uh the eyes are literally the windows to the soul uh right um and you know it kind of gets into this whole thing (sighs) so when i when i talk about this movie being nutty everything we're Mm -hmm. talking about is exactly what i mean you 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 got to buy it but i think eugenio martin and the actors i think they do a great job of selling what they're yeah. what they're the product and yeah. in other words i know this movie's ludicrous but the whole time i'm watching it i'm totally bought in like it's, yeah, yeah it's like they they just sell it the just the right tone just the right storytelling elements just the right pacing in my opinion yeah to make yeah. this a gem of a horror film because every idea in the movie really and and i don't think this is because of i think even in 1972 a lot of this stuff, people were probably like, "Come on, yeah." I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous, but at the same time, it, it's it's fun because it's so mm-hmm. ridiculous. It's fun because it's so just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's there's some really great exchanges um, as well. You know, beyond the, the the kind of thing that you would get more from probably a more quote unquote serious uh, filmmaker uh, or something like that. Like there's the the uh, the scene where. Lee and the uh, De Mendoza character are talking. Lee says, there's a scientific explanation. And the De Mendoza character says, do you know it? It's like, it's just that great little, great little jab. Uh, These things, you know, kind of moves you along. Um, And then, of course, you know, the monk goes along and he just pesters the fuck out of the monster. (laughs) The whole rest of the movie, once he figures certain things out. Yeah, like if, if Um, if the monster had an HR department. 
<laughs> he would clearly need to go to the HR department because the monk is a stalker. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. He's camped out on his lawn there. He's got a tent and yeah. yeah, yeah. He's he's such a creep. <laughs> uh huh. And then just when you think that this thing can't get wilder, who shows up? Telly Savalas and the Cossacks to liven things up. Um, you know, he he, he just has his, – his dialogue is completely not um, – Russian? And, well, I should say his, his dialogue is completely anachronistic, let's say. Yeah. Uh, he says, yeah. I know about telegraphs, little papa, you know, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's but, one of those moments in a movie where, first of all, he comes in at just the right time. Yep. He does – he's not there very long. But no. he comes in with a wacky outfit. He's doing <laughs> he's doing the Tele Savalas nightclub thing. Yep. There's no Russian accent to be had. No, not even trying. The only thing he's missing is a lollipop. Yeah. And oh, and plus he's you know he's bare chested under that fur. <laughs> yeah, because because he sleeps with women. Because you know when you see him, I think he's got a woman in his cage or yeah. whatever. <laughs> so, in his hay uh, his haystack or whatever. Yeah, like. Whatever it was. <laughs> Stall. So, so it's so it's such a bizarre, and he. So when we have said over the years that people chew everything in the scenery or in a movie, <laughs> when we say that this is the proto, this is one of those prototypical instances right here, where yeah, an actor yeah. comes in, uh, they say just do what you want to do. It feels like, and he had worked with <laughs> he had worked with Eugenio Martin before. I think he had done the Pancho Villa uh, movie. I believe so. Uh, which is also kind of fun because he has a great mustache in that one. <laughs> Uh, it's not a great movie, but it is kind of fun. Uh, we should probably review that on the show at some point. Uh, there's quite a few Poncho films, but that one is <laughs> bizarre to say the least. Hey, that little papa. But uh, <laughs> yeah, in true Telly Savalas form, he comes in and just owns everything, even though it makes it makes absolutely no sense why he's acting the way he is. Yep. It's just it's yeah. like, what the hell? But uh, well, he he really puts on a performance for everyone. You know both on the train and in the audience. Yes. Right? I mean yeah. that's that's kind of what he's doing. Is he's he's playing to everybody. Well, he's and 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 I think Eugenio Martin's smart enough to know that so actors like Telly Savalas come along very rarely. This is a guy who not exactly the greatest actor, but there's a certain charisma to Savalas that you can't explain. Right. Uh the camera loved him. Uh he looked great. Um some would say sexy. He he definitely thought he was sexy. And he uh, certainly swaggered. Yeah. 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 And he just there's just something about him that you you just it, the, you know the movies sometimes just love the camera just loves people for some reason, and I think whenever he was on screen, um, people loved him. I think that's the reason why Kojak was a hit. Like Kojak was just a cop show, but I think the reason like my grandfather loved Kojak, and the reason why was strictly because of the appeal of Telly Savalas. Mm-hmm. It's like I was talking about the rookie with Nathan Fillion earlier. Like I like Nathan Fillion. I don't think he's the greatest actor, but I find him very charismatic, so I enjoy watching him. Yes. So same thing with uh, I'm not not comparing Nathan Fillion and Telly Savalas. That's two different worlds. <laughs> but let me tell you. But uh, still, I can see that. I can see where Eugenio Martin's like, you know, we just got done shooting this because I think they use the same sets actually, some of the same sets in this movie that they did on the Pancho Villa film, which they shot. I would completely believe that the year before. So, and they had worked together. So. But yeah, okay. man, he he's he's great. I mean, he's he's great in the movie. Uh, he looks great, you know. And it, probably if you've if you've never seen this movie, you've seen stills from this movie because you've probably seen it. <laughs> Telly Savalas. Uh huh. Um, but then the ending gets really really nightmarish. Uh, I mean, it goes full dark. Yep. And 
by the time the uh, the end credits roll, uh, it's one of those kind of things where you're thinking to yourself, "You there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I know it kind of okay. I I'm getting. A, I was getting an echo. Sorry. Yeah, it made a weird uh, noise. It made a weird noise for a second. Okay, uh, it's one of those uh, films where you know by the time you get to the end, you, you you're still thinking to yourself, you know, as an audience member, well, these guys are still pretty fucked, right? Um, kind of like in those movies where, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, they still got to explain to the cops, this, that, or the other thing. This is the same kind of idea. You know, they get to the end of the film and they're like, well, you really haven't, I mean, you got yourself out of kind of the, the big problem, but you still kind of got a big problem facing you right this second. So that's it. Uh, that's all the notes that I got on, uh, on horror express. Love the film. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> I was looking through the quotes from, uh, Captain Kazan. <clears throat> Man, the devil fears one yeah. honest Cossack. Cossack, that's right. He knows that a horse has four legs. Uh-huh. He knows that a murderer has two arms. But still, the devil must be afraid of one honest Cossack. <laughs> <laughs> like also, there's so he kill anything that gets near that door. <laughs> it's like, damn, I am in Siberia. <laughs> yeah, that was a great a few, one. <laughs> so there's a few moments like that. <laughs> One of the quotes on the IMDb says, "Peasants, peasants." <laughs> I can hear. Of course, he's smoking. He's smoking the uh, the cigarette, like the underhanded, you know, cigarette holder oh, kind yeah. of deal. Oh yeah, it's it's a, it's a total performance. It's a total. Oh my god, yeah. It's just you know, it's it's not a. It, it's it, I, I don't know. I I almost feel like completely like either him and Eugenio Martin got together and just said, you know what, just come in and just do whatever the hell you want to do, <laughs> or he just uh, you know had this idea and he was just going to do it no matter what. So I I don't know. Um, but it, it makes the film a bit of a bizarre creation because like I said, it's just a nutty movie and, but not nutty in the way, I guess maybe the, I guess the best way to explain it is it's not camp so much. Like it takes itself seriously. And I think that's what works. Like it could easily fall into camp territory and, it could have. and maybe for some it will, but for me, the ideas are just nutty enough and just make sense enough. Where it's yeah. pretty much a standard horror film. I mean, it pretty much is just a horror film, and I think that the 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 quote unquote horror elements of the story are disturbing enough that uh, you know I remember the first time I saw this, it bothered me. I used to hate mm-hmm. that glowing eye technique they used to use uh, in the seventies. They used it in Six Million Dollar Man. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They used it on uh, the Hulk. They used it yep. on all kinds of TV shows we grew up with. Where they would like tape it out, tape the the thing over the guy's eyes with yeah, like yeah. the yeah, yeah yeah like that uh, translucent or that uh, reflective tape or something and 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 it would always be disturbing, especially like in the dark. So there's a lot of great images in this of dark corridors and red eyes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it works. It works. It just it really does. And uh, like I said, if you do have eye, eye issues, this is not the movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up there with some Fulci stuff, right? Really, uh, a link of the dog, man. Let's bring up a link of the dog because we didn't bring it up when you were talking. But man, that dog really doesn't want to be in this movie. <laughs> it's trying. At one point, she's in the carriage car near the uh, the Yeti box. Uh, we'll call it that. And uh, that dog is struggling. She's struggling to hang on to that dog. I don't know what they're doing to that dog off screen, but she is struggling to hang on to that dog. There's no doubt oh, about yeah. it. <laughs> so he doesn't like having his picture taken. No, Alinka, Alinka, the dog. Um. <laughs> Uh, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I did like the the acting from everybody. The acting from everybody is very good, uh, even the bit parts. Pretty solid. I mean, there's not anybody that really kind of, d- d- what is it, double bags it. There we go. 
But every everybody kind of plays their part exactly the way they should. And it made me want to have dinner on a train, except that fish didn't look uh, too appetizing. I don't know. No. No, no. <laughs> I think it's because he was staring at the eyeball, which is probably the first place I would look as well. <laughs> After seeing boiling eyes and another person. That <laughs> uh, I almost feel like there's a subtle, if not completely like subliminal type of boiling sound going on under the soundtrack whenever they do that. Uh, I never noticed that. Uh, I, I kind of feel like it's there. I kind of feel like it's there. Maybe uh, maybe it's me. Maybe it's my mind playing tricks on me, but I don't know. Uh, I'll say a few things about the release that's coming out. Uh, so Arrow basically transferred a lot of the uh, same uh, extras that were on the uh, Severn Films release. So a lot of that is there. I think there's some new stuff. Um, I'm not real positive on that, but um, overall the movie looks really good. Uh, as I believe it did on the Severn release, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Look great. It's weird how some films really just kind of transpire or transform, or maybe just, I don't know what the word would be, but they just seem to carry right over. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know why that is, but some just kind of carry right over, and then some need a lot of work. I guess it's just the 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 care that's put into the uh, the original print itself. But, uh, yeah, it says on here you got to, Brand new audio commentary with Stephen Jones and Kim Newman, Ooh. Uh, which I believe is on there. There's an introduction to the film by film journalist uh, Chris Alexander, who used to run Fangoria, which I did watch. That's pretty good. He really talks about how much he loves it. I think that's on the Severn. Uh, the, the yeah, I think it's on the Severn disc though too. Yes. Yeah. There we go. Um, I guess there's some type of interview with Eugenio Martin. So I, I you know, it's good stuff. I know there's an interview with the, the composer John Kakavas, uh, <laughs> uh, about him and Telly. You know, working with telly and stuff because they were friendly so and i did watch that as well it's pretty good it's definitely worth the upgrade but i don't know if it it i, I think only the the um new audio commentary i think would probably be the only real sticking point for anybody to go from the seven release to this mm -hmm. but um you know obviously if you're an arrowhead like we are the criterion of genre film as it will calls them uh would be worth the purchase all right, uh, let's get into our Make or Breaks MVTs. All right. Uh, make or Break for me, it's the finale. Uh, it ramps everything up. Uh, plays out in uh, a really marvelously tense, um, gripping fashion even. Uh, I loved it. Love it, love it, love it. MVT, even though I, I adore the screenplay for this thing, uh, I think that Martin really keeps this thing together and he keeps it really well-paced. Um with all the lunacy going on in it and score for me is an eight out of 10. Uh, it's one that I fell in love with on first sight. I still love it to this day. Uh, and I would imagine in another 30 years, I will still love it if I'm still around then. So <laughs> there we go. 7.75. Is that what you said? Eight, eight. Oh, okay. I don't know where I heard 7.75. <laughs> that was a lot of syllables. It was, um, okay. My MVT, uh, yikes. It's really hard to pick one. I mean, uh, I don't know how many times I'm going to be able to give it to Telly Savalas, so I'm going to give it to him. I mean, it's not like we're going to review Kojak. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say that, uh, he comes in at the right moment and he's completely unforgettable once he shows up. And it's, that's not to take away from any of the other actors. This is one of, I think, Lee and Cushing's, uh, best, uh, duos, uh, best, mm -hmm. uh, kind of working together environments. It really is. They're really great together in this movie. Um, but I think I prefer their, 
almost adversarial performances better. Uh, even though it is really nice to see them working together, I think I almost enjoy them more when it's Van Helsing and Dracula. But uh, make or break, I'm going to go with you, man. I'm going to go with the. I think the the ending is is bonkers. I think it's pretty wacky and it really livens things up. And the movie's not long either, right? I mean, I think it was only like, I think it's like eighty something minutes. Uh yeah, it's like eighty five or eighty seven minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's just a really tight little goofy horror film and uh not goofy in a bad way either i I know i keep saying these words like goofy and nutty but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing no not at all i just think it's the the craziness of it is what makes it so profound and kind of fun to this day and i think it's why it's aged well to be honest with you because uh some people have roped this but i think it's because of cushing and lee i think people have roped this into the hammer world Mm -hmm. and it's nothing like a hammer film in a lot of ways it's totally different Uh, it's like um it's very loose compared to that uh, not that Hammer films are bad. I'm not. A, I'm not a deterrent against Hammer films. I love Hammer films. So, uh, score for me seven point five. So I'm just right below you. Solid. I, I think uh, it's a great uh, little gem of a horror film. I really do. It's just a lot of fun, and uh, the horror elements work. The the whodunit nature of it works, even though they figure it out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because they're willing to jump to any conclusion whatsoever. <laughs> it's right. Uh, and and you know the the, the setting all it all works. So. It's a fun movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. If you have seen it, buy a Blu-ray. You won't regret it, I promise. All right, we're going to take a short break and come back and discuss uh, John Frankenheimer. Am I saying that right, Frankenheimer? Yes, sir. Um, I always get his name mixed up. I'll tell you why when I hit stop on the recording. John Frankenheimer, uh, possibly Michael Bay's dad? Possibly? There's been rumors over the years? Uh... (laughs) We'll be back with uh, Ronan from 1998 right after this. The following message is a paid advertisement for The Cult of Muscle podcast. The Cult of Muscle. You're either in it or you're dead. It's the dawning of a new age. The halls of Valhalla have been shuttered. The heroes of yore have either retreated to the shadows or taken to capering for the amusement of the small folk. Their past glory is a distant memory. The barbells have been torn from their once puma-strong grips. The beards shone from their square jaws, only to be transplanted onto flannel-clad, puny weaklings with fingers barely powerful enough to strum a ukulele. The time has come, my brothers, to restore order from the chaos. No longer will our heroes be forgotten. No longer will their great deeds be viewed through a foggy lens of irony. Hear now our rallying cry as we scream it from the mountaintops, as we bellow it from iTunes and Libsyn and Facebook. It's time to join the cult, my brothers. So don your cloaks and enter the cult of muscle.
everybody. Welcome back. So our next film is 1998's uh, Ronin, directed by John Frankheimer. Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. <laughs> Frankheimer. That's what I always mess up and say. I always say Frankheimer, not Frankenheimer. Uh, good old Frank Hammer. Uh, yeah. A freelancing former U.S. intelligence agent tries to track down a mysterious package that is wanted by the Irish and the Russians. Yeah, we got a lot of Russian elements going on this week. Yeah, right. Not on purpose, but yeah. Yeah, who loves you, baby? Yeah. <laughs> Stalin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stalin loves you. <laughs> uh, That's a sitcom right there. Yeah. <laughs> who loves you? Stalin does. St- Stalin the family. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Oh, let's see here. Man, I hear my my daughter is running around like a mad woman upstairs. <laughs> Man, she can run. All right, so Arrow put this out as well. I was actually kind of surprised when they picked this one up. Um, not because of the film, because I think it's it's definitely kind of become a bit of a cult film lately over the last 20 years. But I, I guess, I don't know. I just Sometimes I, I find it interesting, the stuff they decided to put out. So I'm glad they did, though. I mean, the Blu-ray looks good, and uh, well, it feels a little bit too new for them to put out, right? Yeah, it does a little. You would, you would expect something a little bit older, but then again, you realize that it's 20 years old. Yep. So it is, it's yeah. 20 years old, so it, you know it's definitely old enough. And there's some uh, good stuff on here on the disc as well. Um, uh, obviously, the audio commentary from the original, I think, MGM release from Frankenheimer's on here, and but there's a uh, some. Uh, an interview with uh, Robert Fraz, Fraz, Fraze. I don't know the cinematographer. Uh, there's a, there's a documentary on De Niro, a uh, small one, but there's one on there. I think Tarantino talks about De Niro on here. I think I can't remember if that was on the original MGM release or not, but I honestly don't know. Yeah, so it's an interesting conversation though, because you know, as much as I know, some people don't like Tarantino nowadays. It's he definitely gives his Tarantinoisms on uh, De Niro. Which is interesting. His kind of take on an actor is always interesting to me, and uh, very maybe more interesting in this case because this is kind of a to me this is a Tarantino type performance from De Niro because he's very he's very cool in this movie. Yeah, he's yeah, very, yeah. Well, very- I, 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 a lot of that you know it's a really great combination of uh, De Niro and I believe David Mamet uh, being one of the writers on this thing. Yeah, because the dialogue is uh, very zippy and kind of fun to listen to, and really, oh, it's great. As as much as the the film is an action movie, uh, it's very dial- it's very heavy on dialogue too and interaction. Mm-hmm. And so, what I was talking about earlier with uh, the Meg in the intro is you get a group of people together, and if they're just not interesting, they're not interesting. But this is the exact opposite of that. You get a group of these guys together, and they kind of build this relationship that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So I'll kind of get into, get into it a little bit here. So you got Robert De Niro, you got Jean Reno, you got uh, Natasha McElhone, 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 McElhone. There you go. Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, good old Sean Bean. Uh, Skip Suddeth, who I didn't really know uh, that well until Ronan. Really, I, maybe I'd seen him in a few other things over the years. I mean, he's got plenty of credits, but I didn't really know him until Ronan. To be honest with you, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. He's an interesting choice because he plays a kind of a pivotal role. He's kind of like this very uh, important part of the uh, the getaway. Uh, you got Michael Lonsdale in here. He plays kind of a in one of my favorite scenes, obviously explaining the forty seven Ronin. Um, yeah, Jonathan, Drax. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Price is in here. Uh, Katarina Witt's in here. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't spot her. Was I, I'm assuming she had something to do with the ice skating deal. <laughs> yeah, she was there. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, so it's a, it's heavy on cast, and at the time, I think Frankenheimer. I think he had uh, he. Uh, you can see some similarities to Michael Bay if you look at some of his photos. <laughs> if you, if you, uh, if I remember, he was mostly doing TV movie work, and he had taken over the uh, the dreadful uh, Doctor Moreau film, yes, from uh, Richard Stanley, which is a great story in and of itself. But he had he had done a lot of HBO type stuff. I think probably the last film that people had talked to him about him in a critical way may have been like Fifty Two Pickup in '86. So he kind of been off the radar. He'd been working, but he kind of been off the radar for some time. Um, at least critically. I mean, like I said, he'd been working. He never stopped working. He did Dead Bang. He did Fourth War, Year of the Gun. Some of these movies are okay. I've seen some of these. Against the Wall, the TV. That's an HBO movie. That's pretty good. Uh, the Andersonville TV movie he did that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the good stuff here. The George Wallace TV movie. But, uh, you know, in the 60s, uh, Frankenheimer was, he was probably at the top of his game. I think, uh, what was it, uh, Birdman of Alcatraz, uh, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days of May, and The Train, and then Seconds. Uh, yeah, Manchurian Candidate, Seconds. Yeah, all those yeah. all those were in a row. Yeah, Birdman of Alcatraz, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days of May, The Train, and Seconds. And then Grand Prix after that, which is the uh, notorious for being the other Grand Prix film to McQueen's Le Mans. That's the... Uh, James Garner one, I think. Mm-hmm. And he did some other good stuff in between there, uh, some stuff I like quite a bit. Uh, French Connection 2, which I think is underrated completely. So he did some uh, good stuff, uh, no doubt. But uh, was, you know, maybe not on top of his game, so to speak, at this point. So, at so this, I, No, I would disagree with that. I think well, well, was, well, well I, I'm not saying, I'm, 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 here's what I'm saying. Critically or... Maybe, oh, 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 maybe okay. when this movie was being made, people probably thought it was going to be a different thing. But this sure. movie feels like a movie made by a young man, yes. somebody that's out to prove something. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very aggressive. It's yep. very uh, action heavy. And he's uh, 68 at this point. Uh, he'd be dead just four years later, unfortunately. And uh, but he's 68 at this point. Uh, he's working hard, and he makes he's made a very solid action movie. So we'll kind of get into that a little bit. Um, at the time, like I said, the, I think what I found interesting was I expected it to be more of a thriller in the Frankenheimer vein of, you know, yes. Seven Days of May, Manchurian Candidate, that kind of thing. The actors he attracted and everything, that's what I expected. Yeah, when I saw, when I saw the commercials for this, <clears throat> at the commercials, the trailers were really not great. Um, but at the same time, it was attractive to me at that point in time uh, because I was expecting something that at when I saw this in the theater, I, I, it did not impress me as much on first viewing as uh, as much as I like it today. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's a good point. I'm glad you said that because the first time I saw this, I didn't see it in the theater. The first mm-hmm. time I saw it, I saw it on video. It was uh, still VHS at the time. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I watched it. I rented it one night. And I remember thinking, you know, as much as I love this cast, as much as I love car movies uh, or car stunts in movies, this really wasn't that impressive. I mean, I mean, it was okay. No, no, it felt like there was something missing. Yeah, but in subsequent viewings, I've come to enjoy the film quite a bit, and mm-hmm. in that, I think is where, uh, to me, in that is where I think Arrow has picked it up. I think this movie has become, uh, even though I think it was a, it was a box office success, it has become a bit of a cult film in a way. 
first first of all, it stands out in De Niro's filmography, right? I mean, he's done mm-hmm. some stuff like this, but I don't think anything ever is full tilt action as this one. Um, so, uh, the closest thing would probably be something like Midnight Run. Uh, yeah, 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 which is just a wonderful film, by the way. I love it so I much. I love it. <laughs> it's so good. And, uh, man, I'm trying not to sneeze, so forgive me if you hear me kind of <laughs> stutter a little bit here and there. I'm rubbing my nose like crazy, and I'll try not to sneeze with the mic on. Trying to get the coke off it. Yeah, trying to get the coke off of there. Uh, <laughs> and when I say that, I think when I, I've, I've said that before, and I think when people hear me say that, they think, okay, well, yeah, De Niro's done a lot of stuff like this because basically it's a big kind of open fan film or like a, an easily accessible film. But I disagree. I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's actually a bit more dense and a bit more difficult mm-hmm. of, a, of a film than uh, people give it credit for. I think on the surface it looks like a car chase movie, and a lot of people talk about the car chases in the movie. But really I think it's more of an exploration of the, the movie kind of device known as the MacGuffin, right? The uh, We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, the – the age-old Hitchcockian device of the MacGuffin. You never really know what's in the case, but we just know everybody wants it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's, you know, it's it's almost like Pulp Fiction or anything like that, right? It's that you don't, it doesn't matter what everybody's after. It just matters that everybody's after it. <laughs> so Well, yeah, I mean, and, so, and yeah, I think that, you know, getting into that sort of thing, you know, Everything in this film is a MacGuffin. You get to talk about the man in the wheelchair, right? Yeah. Who's never identified. You have all of these people brought together who we never get uh, really a complete story on. And when we do get more of a story on, you know, it's still not really telling us a whole hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got De Niro. He's he's always asking questions, right? He gets like half answers. Yep. Uh, and and, it, and what it's really kind of smart because it's building up the compulsion. Uh, to get answers that we never fully get or, you know, and this goes back to the MacGuffin, like the, the definition of MacGuffin that we really need. You know, we don't really need um, these things to be defined in order for them to, you know, the mystery alone yep. uh, is what drags us along. And it's the mystery of these people. And and like I said, it's not usually it's it's a bunch of people who are kind of pretty well defined chasing after a thing here. It's everything's a MacGuffin chasing after a MacGuffin. Yep. That's the way I looked at it anyway. Well, I think what's interesting is, so I was looking through De Niro's filmography after this, and it looks like the Killer Elite might be the closest he gets to the kind of Ronin model. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a different movie. It is really a yeah. different movie. And I actually like the Killer Elite. I thought it was, I like that film, so I'm probably one of the few, but uh, I would argue for it. And actually to the point to where I would actually cover it on the show, because I think it's actually a better film than people think it is. Hmm. But uh, yeah, 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 I'm one of those guys. I don't think I've ever sat through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah there you Beyond, go. to be perfectly honest. There we go. He's got three movies coming out this year: War with Grandpa, uh, which sounds like that typical De Niro stuff he's been working on lately. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, he's in the Joker film. With uh, oh, is he? Yeah, he's in that, and then he's in the Irishman, the uh, Scorsese, yeah, the, the big, you know, the one everybody's waiting for, I guess, with uh, bated breath. Mm-hmm. So, got some work coming. He's getting up there, man. He's getting up there. He's He's not a young man anymore. But he is a war- is, is, is is any of us? Yeah, he's he's working his ass off. I know that man. You look yeah, at his yeah. filmography, like you know when he started out, he was doing like maybe one movie a year. You know, of course, it's a different world now, and and you know he's had children, and he just divorced again recently, and I think he's got a seven year old from that divorce, and not to get too uh, expose or or uh, you know one of those type of rags or anything on the show, but I know there was a video released recently of. 
uh, his driver not being outside the courthouse and uh, he was really fucking pissed because you know he's a private motherfucker you know so mm-hmm. he was really fucking pissed that his driver wasn't where he said he was supposed to be <laughs> and of course there's a million people around with cameras nowadays and he, he did not like that so anyway uh to get back to the film so the film sets up uh with a nice little cat and mouse beginning you don't really know what's kind of going on it's well done yep. i think de niro what what i've always loved about de niro and what i find to be my personal taste in acting and this probably comes from the leone world and 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 films like that and i think what some of the criticisms of this movie were in the beginning was they sold this movie as an action movie but it has an actually a lot of slow moments yeah a lot of people standing around kind of looking to each other pensively smoking cigarettes drinking coffee well, yeah, it's all it's all distrust right from the start. Yep. Yeah. And I think that Frankenheimer does a really good job of using reaction shots mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and editing those reaction shots to kind of keep that distrust going. So there's some really, really, really great acting from De Niro in the opening where he's kind of just watching everything and the way he reacts to everything. And he's kind of putting stuff together and you're kind of working through his head without him saying a word. I mean, he doesn't say anything for quite some time. Yeah. And it's pretty great. It's a uh, really pretty great. And then well, it's uh, almost it's almost Melvillian. It is. It is. It's Melvillian, a little Leone esque. It's it's definitely mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. in that realm, right? And obviously that makes sense because Frankenheimer comes from that generation of filmmakers, but he probably loved those type of filmmakers. Um, I don't remember what he said on the commentary. I remember I listened to it a long time ago, but I need to listen to it again. But I know that De Niro, like so many actors that are are great can do a lot with just a look it's it's again it's unexplainable just like the telly savalas thing we were talking about it's unexplainable but it's just it's there but there's a whole cast of those actors in here there's a you know jean reno who can do a lot with a look stellan skarsgård can do a whole hell of a lot with a look uh even though he tends to have the same look i don't know if it, it, <laughs> yeah he's pretty he's he's kind of a blank uh, yeah but it, but it always works right i think jonathan price actually i think he's very underrated i think he does really good work with just looks and stuff like he can play evil and seedy and nasty and sleazy mm-hmm. and and then very overtly nice all within like you know five minutes of each other this was some of the looks he gives and stuff so i think he's pretty great in the movie as well but i think everybody the reaction shots and everything i think they're handled very well um maybe to me one of the most interesting things about it is it is I just I don't I don't know how the germ of an idea comes up. I don't know how John Frankenheimer suddenly decides he wants to make a car action movie. Now it's not so we should say there is a lot of car action in the film, but it's not the majority of the film. I think it's just the stuff you it's, remember the most. Yeah, it's it's two big uh, two big scenes with cars. Really, yeah, like there's yeah. the there's the uh, the thing after the the um, the weapons pickup, uh, and then there's the big big scene that everybody always talks about. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was yawning. Oh, gave That's okay. But I think that the thing is, I don't think anybody was making these kind of car movies at that time. No, they and, were not. And I think that's what's so memorable. And even now, when we talk about the Fast and Furious films, one of the reasons why I don't like the Fast and Furious films is because not all of the car stuff is practical. And to me, yeah, I know it's, they're cartoonish, and there's no way you can do some of the shit you can do in those movies. But that's the problem to me. I need my, I like my car stuff a little bit more uh i don't know visceral i need it a little bit more you know like i need the danger yeah i'm not saying they don't do some good stuff in the fast and furious films because well the ones i've seen i have seen some impressive stuff i'm just saying you know i like them but they're they're completely different from something like this yeah yeah 
yeah, yeah. It's just they never feel grounded to me. They feel like they're no. They, well, they're not. They're cartoons. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This feels like a film made by somebody who's who's just you know like we haven't seen car action in a long time. I mean, there's some crazy stunts in this shit. There's a, there's some crazy stuff in this movie, and mm-hmm. the, the stuntmen clearly are insane. Because <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's not the most impressive stunt you'll ever see, but it's certainly uh, as a forty five year old man, I wouldn't want to do this shit. I know. So I, I found it pretty impressive. To no, and this. and you know, talking about the uh, the car scenes in this thing, um, they're really technically well done. Outside of just you know the the stunt work itself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I noticed. I, because I'm looking at it a little more critically now, um, that it's a really strong use of uh, POV shots in this thing. He uses really wide establishing shots, yep. as many angles as is humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And then what he does, you know, it's you know kind of brilliant. Uh, the editing, it, how he maintains the action reaction shots the whole way through. Yep. Um, you know, he lays out the geography uh, for you know every action scene that the not just the car ones, but you know. The, the other ones as well, uh, and he sticks to it. We always know where we are, right? I mean, yep. and that's kind of that. That's kind of really, really the key to action yep. is being able to orient the audience and keep them oriented through the whole thing. Which is impressive um, because you're not. Even, yeah, it is. It's, that ain't easy shit, believe no, it or not. And you're you're in another country, so you're. It's um, <clears throat> it's like the best of the Bond films in a way. Mm-hmm. The, when the when the Bond films get it right, I think is when the geography of the action makes sense. When the Bond films get it wrong, I can't tell what the hell's going on. I don't know where yeah. I'm at. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but he takes these locations that I'm not familiar with somewhere in, in France or England or Russia or wherever. And I think they're in France, right? And, they're in France. And he takes these locations I'm not aware of, but I know where everything is. I know where all the pieces fit because of the way he sets everything up. So it's really, mm-hmm. it is quite brilliant and really... It's almost a shame that Frankenheimer, Frankenheimer didn't go out. I see, I call him Frankenheimer again. Frankenheimer didn't kind of go out with this film. Uh, although I think this is the last film he did, and the one he will be most remembered for at the back end of his career, because I think I he did. I think he did Reindeer Games after this, which was a critical bomb. And uh, I have never, I've actually never seen Reindeer Games, but uh, me neither. So I don't know, but I mean, I know people were kind of high on it because he had come off of this, and then I heard, I remember it, it failed miserably. So and then he got ill, and, and you know things happen. So, um, but I I think it like I said, it just felt like a, it almost felt like a director. It almost felt like a not not a middle finger, but almost like hey guys, you forgot I know how to make movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It almost felt like that, and uh, you know, like I said, those five films he made in a row back in the sixties, I'd put that run against anybody making five films in a row. I mean, it was impressive. That's an impressive run, five in a row like that. To me, there's not a there's not a bad movie in that bunch. Um, uh, not not I'm not saying they're all great. I'm just saying that. No, no, there's it, not a bad. I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, you can't. It's it's hard to put together five in a row like that. I mean, it's just that that's really tough. I think for any filmmaker, I think the 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 you know he's not often spoken about as a great filmmaker, maybe a great journeyman filmmaker. But uh, I think that's just because after that five film run he had in the '60s, I think he his work was. It kind of teeter tottered between, you know, good and bad and average, and you know, the, you know, the, there's always that saying. I always think of, again, not to bring him up, but I always think of Tarantino. Always saying that once directors get over a certain age, it's like the work changes. And 
I agree. I was actually watching some of the Brian De Palma documentary again the other day. I started watching it again, and then I had turned off because there was some imagery. My son was in the room with me. And there was some imagery I'd forgot they show in the documentary that I didn't really want him to see. And uh, it's interesting that when you're young and energetic and you got all these ideas, those don't go away when you get older. But sometimes the the ability to execute them does. And I don't know why that is, but I think that that happens with a lot of art. Now, that's not to say people can't come back or people can't just be awesome their whole career. I mean, some would argue that you know Stanley Kubrick never changed, although I would argue that he did because up until Strange Love, I think he's a totally different filmmaker until we get to Strange Love and then he's I think the, I think Strange Love and on he's the Kubrick we know. I think everything before that there's just bits and pieces of the Kubrick we know. But yeah. But I I think with Frankenheimer, you know, I think he kind of gets roped into this kind of Hollywood journeyman because well, I mean, he worked, and when you work and you make a lot of films, that's what that's what happens. I mean, that you end up being that guy. I mean, Brian De Palma ended up making a Mission Impossible movie, right? I mean, you just you eventually you have to work if you want to keep doing this. So you can't you can't always be lucky enough and be a, a Tarantino or a Stanley Kubrick or a Martin Scorsese or a uh, I mean, like I said, there's only a handful of those guys. You know, sometimes you end up being a you know a fucking John Turtletop. That's what I had to watch this. That's what I watched this week. <laughs> You know, and you know, I'm sure there's people out there that love John Turtletop, but uh, I'm not one of them. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, he's not my go-to, but uh, no, I, I, I get exactly what you're saying, and I think that you know, there's really something to be. I think that people kind of, I think they kind of make the mistake uh, when they talk about, um, like, like we're saying about uh, journeyman directors, um, because there's no seemingly overt stylistic flourishes. Um, and yet you could probably string together all of Frankenheimer's films, especially, you know, the five that we were talking about before, you know, way back in his career. Uh, and you will be able to spot all sorts of little visual things that he was doing in every one of those movies yeah. that repeated and re-repeated and all, all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, he's also a guy who came from that, that era when you were supposed to kind of be invisible. It was invisible filmmaking. It wasn't about, yes. you know, the director, 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 yes. director, director. Yes. It was about, you know, making the film, getting the film made, you know, solid, making it, you know, uh, crafting a solid story, being a visual storyteller, yeah. uh, not necessarily a visual stylist. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that gets, that really is something that gets, um, uh, you know, kind of pushed to the side yeah. and why guys like Frankenheimer or even a turtle tub, uh, let's say, um, may not get uh, spoken of as yeah. much is because they don't put themselves, uh, front and center, um, to, you know, kind of draw attention to their filmmaking. They're too busy making the film. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, obviously guys like Kubrick as well, who, who have, you know, very clear, uh, styles or, or even Hitchcock, um, you know, when you get into that realm, even though they were more stylish, uh, they still understood the basics of good storytelling in film, mm -hmm. and they always stuck to them. Yep. Um, and, you know, it was more that this was just the way that their particular uh, personality comes through in the films rather than being something that's forced out. Uh, as being, you know, like a, um, uh, an attention getter, I guess yeah. would be uh, the, the best way I can say, I don't know. I've been up for like 16 hours. So. No, 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 no. But, but I, I think you bring up an interesting point. So Frankenheimer comes along right at the cusp of the auteur filmmaker. 
Sure. I mean, he starts making movies in the early 60s. Yep. So in a lot of ways, he's kind of the predecessor to that, right? He's right on the cusp of that, because I agree with you, because I I, I think I reviewed Seconds with uh, Mike and, and them over at uh, the projection booth. Mm-hmm. And when I go back and I think of Seconds a lot, I think about all the style that's in there. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. Seconds is 1966, so we're now we're talking, we're heading toward that. We're heading, we're right on the precipice of all of these filmmakers coming along, and there's already been a few, Sergio Leone and and some world and worldwide filmmakers, some of the French stuff. There's already been some of that stuff kind of bleeding through, but Frankenheimer's like one of the first guys, the American guys, kind of bring, bringing that in, and mm-hmm. it's almost like he gets lost in that shuffle. I don't know what happened, uh, but to me, Seconds is such a high benchmark, and then Grand Prix. Is such a it's not it's not a bad film. I like Grand Prix, but it's it's so different from Seconds. It's like at that point he changes. Now, like I said, there are good films in between there. There definitely are, and some I haven't seen. So maybe he did make uh, a couple in there that were you know I haven't seen the Gypsy Moss. I haven't seen uh, Story of a Love Story. I haven't even seen his The Iceman Cometh. I haven't even seen that. So um, maybe there's that stuff in there. But from what I can remember. You can th- if I if I look at his filmmaking from Birdman of Alcatraz, I can see the 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 progression of style from Manchurian Candidate to Seven Days of May to The Train, which has some really great action sequences, to Seconds, which is you know playing with camera, playing with film story and theory and everything, and what we know and paranoia, and then it jumps into Grand Prix. It's almost like you know it's a it's it goes back to that thing. So I think. You know, it's it's hard to explain without sitting here and doing a total. You know, we 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 review every Frankenheimer film, but it is interesting to me that he he seemed to like almost disappear in the uh, the eighties, and then the nineties kind of made a bit of a comeback. But then by the time he has to get to the end of the nineties, and then unfortunately he drove. You know, he only he's only seventy two when he died, so he, there's quite a potential that he could have made some more great films. I think the last thing he made was a TV movie, but he could have made some more great films. I mean, it's quite possible because I mean he. He makes that so late in his career. He makes uh, Ronan. There certainly was probably more films in him. So anyway, get back to the movie itself. There's a lot of scenes of people, like I think we talked about before. Maybe I didn't talk about it on the recording, but I definitely talked about it before. A lot of scenes of people standing around, black outfits, being cool, uh, you know, cleaning guns, checking equipment. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you're like, yeah, this is my kind of movie. Mm-hmm. People sleeping on cots. That always gets me excited. <laughs> This random, yes. random, random cot sleeping. I love it. <laughs> uh, it fully clothed too. Yeah, exactly. Well, oh, if there's like, anything more uncomfortable, <laughs> looks like a bit of a drafty warehouse. So I can yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but there are some good scenes of uh, food and coffee. Uh, those scenes I always like that stuff, right? People sitting around having some coffee. There's the one guy who always goes and gets the food, brings home the crate. You know, you always see the bread sticking out. You know, it's just yep. that Got kind of stuff. Have the baguette. Yeah, you gotta have the baguette. That's right. You're in France. Uh, the it, it's it's just I think those type of scenes build what you have to have in a in a group heist or a group situation type film like this, and I think they work. And I like a lot of that stuff. Uh, the if there's anything I didn't like about the movie watching it this time, I think this is the third time I've seen it. Um, De Niro's characters. Although, although I do like that he's cool and he's a he's very smart, he almost comes off a bit uh, elitist sometimes. <laughs> okay, okay. To, well, no, see, yeah, to the I point mean, where that's... like he sees everything coming. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's that's the joy that I get out of the film, frankly, oh, okay. is, you know, predominantly uh, it's from just listening to not so much the character, obviously, but uh, just listening to De Niro drop these little chunks of sage wisdom, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that to me is, and that's why I keep, and that's why I go back to, you know, I really appreciate Mamet's uh, contribution to the film because I do think it has some pretty, some pretty good dialogue. Yeah, um, yeah, it does, and it. certainly hard bitten, uh, hard bitten dialogue all the way throughout. Yeah, I mean, it, um, ha- it has those elements that we want. I mean, so there's to me, there's two dialogue writers over the last you know twenty or thirty or forty years oh. of cinema that are completely pivotal to where cinema is for me, and that's Tarantino and Mamet, Mamet and Tarantino, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. And mm-hmm. those two guys are are two of the best. I mean, there's just say what you want to say about anything else they do, their filmmaking, their opinions, blah blah blah. But it's it's going to be hard for you to argue with me that when they put two characters in a room or at a table, that you're not going to. Have, I mean, and, and they don't hit it out of the park every time, but they no. always have interesting conversations. And mm-hmm. a lot of times, the conversations in this film they have a lot more to do with the story. But a lot of times they don't have anything to do with the story. A lot of times they're just people talking, and that builds character. That's very hard, I think, for people who make movies uh, to understand because I think you always, in the movie business, they always want you to progress story yeah, and move along and move along. And I think one of the keys to making a great movie, in my opinion, not saying this is great, but I'm just saying some of the great movies, in my opinion, are uh, their moments, their dialogue moments. Um, you know, I think the reason why people loved Mammoth when he hit the scene is because, you know, he would take the time to have characters sit around and talk about something before they did anything. And then, well, yeah, and that's because that's because, in my opinion, at least, uh, you know, that's how you are creating conflict uh, and tension and building character because that's where the character comes from. Is that how how do they resolve these conflicts? Mm-hmm. How do they resolve this tension between these two people who are just kind of sitting there? Yep. And it could be, and it could be the simplest little thing. It could be something that's you know innocuous and and sort of friendly, uh, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, uh, it, there's still something in there. There's some little nugget that the uh, the two are disagreeing on. Otherwise, why are we having a conversation, right? right. Uh, it's the differences uh, as much as it is the things that they uh, you know agree on. Whoever right. the characters are, right. that's why a scene like uh, the Hans Landa scene, uh, the opening of uh, Inglorious Bastards, is so fantastic. Two guys sitting there smoking pipes, but yeah. you learn pretty much everything you need to learn right. about uh, about the Hans Landa character, and it is incredibly tense. Without anything really happening, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just people drinking milk and smoking pipes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any milk? La leche. <laughs> but it's it's great, right? I mean, it's just... And not only that, think about... If you go back and look at that, uh, think about the fact that, you know, at the time, the writing and the filmmaking, you're taking two actors that people in America don't even know. Mm-hmm. Christopher Waltz and then the, uh, the French actor. I don't know his name, but he's great in mm-hmm, the movie mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, it's just... But that's the that's the benefit of good writing and good filmmaking is you just you can grab an audience like that, and uh, I, to me it's something Mamet's done very well over his career. And I think you know, you know Mamet's kind of been forgotten, uh, not not forgotten by a lot of film lovers, but definitely by some folks as to how pivotal and how important he's been to the movie making process over the last, like I said, thirty years or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot more. I mean, I could talk about the the conversations they have, but yeah, I did have some issues with that. That he was so quick on the on the draw, everything was so negative. But I mean, it makes it does make sense. It, it you got to have. I mean, just like you got to have the MacGuffin, the thing they're striving for. You got to have the guy that also propels the film 
forward and smells a you know smells a rotten egg. Right, right. So you got to have those things, and and it makes sense. It just sometimes in the movie he comes off as a bit uh, crass in a way mm-hmm. that I think you know the other guys would like him to be a little bit more. I mean, like he opens up to Jean Reno, but he doesn't really open up to. Uh, the other actors nearly as much like he doesn't trust those, but for some reason he does trust Reno from the beginning. Right. Maybe, well, maybe he, he, the offer of the cigarette maybe might be the reason. It's part of it uh, because I think that Reno is really kind of the heart of the film. Uh, yeah. He cares about the others or seems to. Uh, he does he's, seem you know, to have the, the big connects. heart. Yeah, he's the one that seems to be the most human of the bunch. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. um, he so, doesn't I mean, he doesn't have to save De Niro's character, right? Like it's easier at the moment when De Niro gets hurt and they have to take him to the great scene with. Uh, uh, I can't remember the um, Lonzo Drax. Yeah. I just call him Drax. Yeah, when they have to take it and see him, and uh, we get the, that great scene between him and Drax. Uh, mm-hmm. The the uh, he didn't have to do that. He did, he could have just you know maybe got rid of the body. Could have been crass like that. Could have been cold. Yeah, could've maybe washed his hands of the whole thing. But he's developed a relationship with the Sam character, the De Niro character, and. He feels it's his right. You know, he's there's an honor, honor amongst thieves, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, oh, very much, very much. So I, uh, I did appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, speaking of the the Drax scene, you know, in the same way that uh, De Niro's kind of the sage loner, Drax is kind of the sage recluse, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's the one who gives us the forty seven Ronin tale, uh, where the you know film obviously gets his title from. Uh, about you know the subterfuge in service of a cause, the sacrifice, all of that, and this is the, the scene I think where you get the De Niro character. Uh, it's either his most honest uh, and or his most mistaken um, about why he's doing anything. It kind of it you know it lifts up a little bit more uh, about the guy without really pinpointing it without being on the nose i think it gets on the nose in the in the end a little bit too much yeah that I agree uh, with that, that is really the misstep of the film is the big finale mm-hmm. to be honest yeah i agree with you completely on that i think it for some reason it doesn't work well it I mean, really doesn't in, in, it, in comparison to the rest of the film it doesn't it's too bright it's too shiny yeah. it's too um it's just too another world uh, from what the rest of the film is. Yeah. I was looking through some of the trivia. It says Ron Jeremy flew to Paris for a small part in the film, but was eventually <laughs> cut by the studio. Come on, man. Can't was he a out, hedgehog? Can't cut out the hedgehog. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but uh, do, you have, do you have more? Do you want to? Uh, no, no, no. I'll kick it over to you. Okay, okay. Uh, so, okay, talking about a few of these characters, really. Uh, you know, the Sean Bean character. Uh, is pretty much a cunt from the get go, uh, yeah. and he looks he looks really sickly or just plain British, um, <laughs> or just, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he. They never really say, do they? But I just think he. I think he's. It seems like he's hooked on something or something. Yeah, right. You kind of get the idea that he's kind of he's tweaking on something. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the Deirdre character, the McElhone, uh character. Uh, she she kind of acts enigmatic, right? Trying to be authoritative, but she's still an underling. Um, the Stellan Skarsgård character then is, you know, he's supposed to be De Niro's opposite number. Uh, he's clearly not as charming, although he does have certain a certain charm to him in the way that he's kind of like reptilian, in the way that he takes shots at people. Um, and, of course, you know, he's a German ex-KGB, uh, and, you know, he's also completely inhuman uh, apart from everybody else. You know, if everybody else is kind of like a, a, a sketch 
of a uh, character type, then he's, you know, just a complete uh, animal. Uh, and this is illustrated for us with the playground scene, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I'll just leave that at that. Uh, there is, let's see here. Ooh, uh, a fruit stand gets fucked up during the, uh, the caper. And yes, that's a right. farmers and a farmers market. Yes, I don't know. So there's, there's a fucking twofer on this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I, I ever neglected to mention that. I totally remembered it. Even I just didn't write the note down. <laughs> but I, I saw that. I was like, oh, this is going in the notes. Yeah. Uh, and then of course J and B shows up. Yes. Um, <laughs> I forgot to mention at, that as well. <laughs> yeah, at at, uh, at Gregor's place with yeah. Jonathan Price drinking it. Um, Has there ever been a more thankless task than being an orange in an action movie? No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> you get no, you get no love if you're fruit in an action film no, involving cars. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Oranges and lettuce—they always get it first. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, oh, uh, Father Christmas shows up. So I guess this is considered another Christmas film, uh, which we won't get into that whole debate. <laughs> um, and oh, uh, why? Is it that in these sorts of movies, there's always some shady Eastern block ass wipe involved with like an ice skating show or a ballerina uh, deal or something like that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I know. this is like this is like the uh, the for your eyes only kind of uh, model of uh, of a caper film, right? <laughs> I don't know. They always have that though. Maybe it's a bigger, they, they do. It, it might be a bigger deal there. Maybe I don't know. It might be. Yeah. I, I would be very curious to actually. You know, learn a bit, a little bit about the uh, the reasoning behind that, or maybe just hey, listen, maybe all Russians uh, love ice skating. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a, that great little surgery scene, uh, which is really really tense. Um, and <laughs> poor John Reno, he can't he can't get the fucking bullet out the first time, and you just you could you could feel De Niro being like you motherfucker. Yeah, I like I like that uh, I like how that ends kind of anticlimactic. I like how De Niro goes, okay, that's good. I'm gonna pass out for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he literally just passes out. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and then you know the uh, the finale uh, makes the first misstep. Uh, the fir- well, I should say the first misstep that the finale takes uh, is when it takes time out of the uh, the story that we've been following for a little bit of the ice skating show, which yeah. is just. I don't. Uh, I know it's bizarre. That's, that's, that's it, it. It it deflates everything. It, it does. You know, so the, the the ice skating stuff is so forgettable that yeah. I've seen the film three times and I always forget that we got a, <laughs> we got this ice skating moment. Now the payoff of the ice skating stuff is kind of hilarious when you think of it. I don't want to I don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen Ronan, but you don't expect what happens to happen. Yeah, especially yeah, yeah. with somebody like Katarina Witt in the film. <laughs> yeah, who's yeah. playing herself? So I found that I kind of I always find that kind of entertaining. Not, not not maybe just in a dark humor type way. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But um, um, but first, you got to get through the ice skating. And again, not to knock people who love ice skating, but it's not my bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and another piece of why the finale does not work, uh, I think, is that it it really tries to force itself to explain as much as it can without really explaining everything yeah um and it's a misstep uh it works better uh, being enigmatic being mysterious being being the MacGuffin that it is yes right right uh and when it when it when it tries to when it actually goes to give you the explanations then they're just really not that satisfying yep it Um, it never is right i mean no it never is it's the explanation is never as good as the journey getting there it's just never that way right Right, but but for something as involved in it as this movie is, mm-hmm. for them to make that kind of a mistake is kind of you know it really is kind of uh, 
it's got really kind of sad. Uh, but it's still a, it's still a good movie. It's still a solid action movie. It still has great dialogue. Uh, it still you know has a lot uh, going on visually. It has it has some fantastic transitions between scenes that uh, that oh, Frankenheimer yeah. was pulling off, mm-hmm. which you know obviously it's not something most people are going to take notice of. But I, I start you know I, I was like picking them out. And I'm like oh okay he wiped there okay and then there was this and oh and he used the suitcase here yeah. yeah it it's kinda, a curse. Kind of plays, kind of plays with. Well, I think it kind of plays with the film buff sensibility. Yeah. I yeah. mean, when I even the first time I saw this, I didn't love it. The first time I saw it, but even the first time I saw it, like it was playing to all my film buff. You know, it was playing with what I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even I knew I was watching. I was like, "Ooh, that's nice. Ooh, that was nice. Ooh." <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. No. Overall, I uh, I dug this one. I, I, I like this one a little bit more each time, although I could st- I, know, I know exactly the point at which I can turn it off yep. and be perfectly happy with the, with doing so. I agree with you. I'm um, in the same camp. I, I like it a little bit more. I've seen it three times now, and each time I've liked it just a little bit more. But when it gets to about the hour and 40-minute mark, mm-hmm. or really when it gets to the ice skating sequence, uh, except for the, the very end of the film with Renault and De Niro, mm-hmm. I'm not... Uh, I love that moment. It's unfortunate I got to get through this little chunk to get to that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that's that's honestly really all I have to uh, to add into this thing. I think I could listen to a podcast of Robert De Niro's character and John Reno's character talking yeah. about talking about either cars or guns. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be all right. Like, what will you do, I, what I will you'll do next? Yes. I don't know, my friend. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be a lot of dead air. <laughs> it would be a lot of dead air. <laughs> a lot of passing around of yellow papered cigarettes. Uh-huh. A lot of nose breathing. Yeah, yeah. I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of referring back to the uh, the time that he learned of the 47 Ronin. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the man in the wheelchair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, but I like a lot of the moments that De Niro has. In the, you know, lady, I never get myself in a situation I don't know the way out of. Uh-huh. I love the way he does that. And there's a lot of great there's a lot of great dialogue like that. And you can totally uh hear the mammoth in that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a thing of beauty. So he's like, whenever there's any doubt, there is no doubt. <laughs> First thing they teach you, and he's like, Who taught you? He's like, I don't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. <laughs> so that's uh and there's just a lot of little like great like De Niroisms in there like that. I mean they're really more mammothisms, but it's great to hear him say it. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you ever killed anybody? He's like, I hurt somebody's feelings once. You know, just little. Those are just totally mammoth move moments. I mean, if you know what mammoths work, that that's totally stuff he would say, or his dialogue, his characters say. All right, uh, MVT. Uh, you know, uh, the stunt driving is amazing in this film, but I got to give it to Frankenheimer. Uh, he really puts together a pretty pretty solid film here, um, and I like it quite a bit. Uh, like I said, third time I've watched it, I've liked it a little bit more. It's probably went from a 7 to a 7.25 to what it is now to me, which is a 7.5. Okay. Uh, again, it's a bit long, and I agree with you, Todd, completely that one piece, me and you, would, if we were in a theater together, we would be like, oh, God, here we go. we got to watch this ice skating thing again. <laughs> um, make or break, though, is a little difficult for me because there's so many great moments, but I really like the intro. I like the introduction of the characters Okay. in that cafe. I really like that, so I'm going to go right. with that. All right, cool. Uh, MVT for me, yeah, I got to go with Frankenheimer. Uh, he does a fantastic job crafting a decent little um, late era uh, Cold War thriller. Um, 
but that, yeah, I mean, like we've been saying, it kind of missteps at the end. Uh, make or break is uh, for me. It's the scene after the gun deal uh, with the uh, the coffee ambush. Um, oh, I yeah. just that that scene just works. I look forward to it. I will stop. If the movie's started and I'm before that scene, I'll watch it up until that scene. Yeah. And then if like I have shit to do, I'll go do it. Uh, but I have to see that scene. I love it so much. It works so well for me. Yeah, it's good. Um, and it's pure. It, it's pure. Uh, married to Frankenheimer uh, in that little uh, in that little exchange. Yep. Yep. And score for me, I'm I'm spot on with you. Seven point five out of uh, out of ten. Uh, nice. It's a nice little. Uh, it's a nice little flick. Yeah, I said is. flick. It's a it's a good little good little picture. It's a good yeah. It's a nice picture. Solid picture, as Scorsese would say. Oh, it's a really great picture. <laughs> and, uh, Scorsese and Dante. Those are the two. Every time I think of somebody saying the word picture, it's those yep. two guys. Yep. Yep. I remember, I remember I was at the front row at a convention and Dante was there, and he every time somebody would bring up a movie, he'd go, "Oh, that's a wonderful picture. Oh, love that picture. Love that picture." <laughs> Great picture, great picture. I well, how many pe- how many people today even know that they were called motion pictures? Yeah, I, I know. mean, yeah, I know. So I loved, I love to hear those old guys though. I love to hear them call them pictures. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love to hear that. It's like uh, you know, there's a certain nostalgia to it, right? Mm-hmm. And I like to hear people say film. I wish people would say the actual word movie sometimes more. It's weird that a lot of people will say either film, picture, uh, flick. Uh, yeah. but they won't say movie. A lot of people, I think, make the distinction between films and movies. You know, film is like the the art side of it. Movies is like the Buckaroo Bonsai side of it. Yes. Um. So, I mean, that's that's why you really don't hear movies a lot unless you're talking about, unless you're talking to somebody who really really likes, you know, um, you know, anything that's that's more mass audience would be most people would consider movie uh bergman is film right i mean that's the way they they kind of make that uh right that right. distinction yeah all right so that's a big show this week i got two visitors in my little studio here Woo-hoo. got my son and my my little one what you doing you want to come in here you want to say hi no no <laughs> it's all right i wouldn't want to say hi to me either <laughs> i understand <laughs> All right, so that's going to be the big show. I don't know what we're going to do next week. We'll figure it out. We'll yeah, start, man. start kicking it back and forth. Hopefully, we'll yeah. do the show next week. So, uh, with that, I'll say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 